listening to Ohio V, The World, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Hey guys, welcome back. It's episode two of season three, Ohio versus bootlegging. And today we're talking about George Remus from Cincinnati, Ohio. We'll talk about his journey from being a poor German immigrant to becoming the king of the bootleggers in Prohibition here in the United States, headquartering himself out of Southwest Ohio in the Queen City. This episode, we went down to Cincinnati, went to the Price Hill Historical Society and interviewed Authors Julie Hotchkiss and Joyce Meyer, in their book Remembering Remus and Price Hill, the area where he lived. He had his mansion uh, on Hermosa Avenue. And we also talked to historian Mark Plagueman, a member of the Price Hill Historical Society, who just knows so much about Remus. It was a real treat to go down there, tour their museum, um, and I suggest you go check them out. So great to be doing episodes again. Uh, our launch party is tonight, Friday, October 19th at the Columbus Italian Club. Uh, again, beer, wine, food, live band karaoke uh, to celebrate the new season of episodes and, and all the money goes to our nonprofit to promote Ohio history across the state. Um, so we look forward to seeing you there. Most of you are listening to this, you probably already missed the party, so sorry to say. Our beer for the episode, we went down to Hamilton, Ohio, just outside Cincinnati, uh, and went to Municipal Brew Works, uh, municipal.beer, the website, check them out. We met with Jim Goodman. Uh, who runs the place down there. It's an awesome uh, downtown brewery right on the river in, in Hamilton. And we had tasted about six or seven of his beers. Today, our beer for the episode, we're drinking a walk in the park. And we'll talk about when George Remus takes a walk in the park in Eden Park, Cincinnati, uh, and a crazy violent episode that happens during his walk in the park in Cincinnati in 1925 and 1927. But the beer was fantastic. Jim was super cool. We also talked to him just about Prohibition in Hamilton. Hamilton was a big brewing town in the 19th century, early 20th century, hit hard by Prohibition. We talked to him about the Prohibition years in southwest Ohio. Uh, And like I said, check that place out if you're ever down in Hamilton. Um, Really cool place. Again, Municipal Brew Works. So we'll catch up with them in a little bit. It's said that George Remus, the subject of episode two, the king of the bootleggers, was F. Scott Fitzgerald's motivation for Jay Gatsby and The Great Gatsby, that book we all had to read in high school, that uh, classic prohibition tale. He was Gatsby, and his life was insane, and he made himself into a multimillionaire by breaking the law, by providing alcohol to the people of the Midwest, Chicago, and New York, and the East Coast, and basically becoming the most successful businessman in Prohibition. In this episode, we'll talk about his crazy life. Like we said, from being a poor immigrant child in Chicago to a pharmacist to a lawyer, and again, to becoming a criminal mastermind. And ultimately, uh, going on trial for murder in the trial of the century in Cincinnati, Ohio in the late 1920s. We'll follow all that here in episode two, Ohio versus bootlegging. 
guys, again, thank you so much for listening to so many people listening to episode one, our Neil Armstrong episode. Uh, really appreciate that. Make sure you rate and review the show. Write us a quick review. It helps us uh, up in the rankings in iTunes and Stitcher. Um, and it, it always helps us with, uh, you know, constructive criticism as well. You know, if you want to email us show ideas, thoughts about the show, just to pick up the discussion, you can always find us on Facebook uh, or just email us, ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. Uh, so many people have reached out to us that way, and we love talking Ohio history on there. But let's waste no further time. We're going to go back to the Queen City in the Roaring Twenties with the Flappers and the Bathtub Gin. And we're going to look at the life of George Remus because it's episode two, Ohio vs. Bootlegging. Scott Fitzgerald, the famous American author, once wrote, There are no second acts in American lives. George Remus, who was the, the basis for F. Scott Fitzgerald's famous character, Jay Gatsby, actually had three acts. We'll talk about all of them, really, maybe even more than that. Um, but Fitzgerald and Remus became friends. They met at the Seelbach Hotel, a famous hotel in downtown Louisville. Louisville, a town full of booze, still is. Um, you know, a real bourbon whiskey town, uh, but even more so during Prohibition. Near Cincinnati, George Remus, the famous bootlegger, would always be down there. Fitzgerald was down there, you know, stationed um, at a nearby fort. It's a place where Al Capone always came. All kinds of gangsters ate and drank at the Seelbach Hotel. But it's here that Fitzgerald, in our subject of today's episode, George Remus met. And it's here that George Remus became the basis for Jay Gatsby. We asked our guest, uh, Joyce, and we asked our guest, Julie Hotchkiss, to talk about, is George Remus really Jay Gatsby? And I can find many, many instances where I think that uh, it proves that it was Remus. And um, I think the most important of those would be that um, F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote that book um, in 1925, so he most certainly uh, could have known Remus, and we do know that he did know Remus because there um, are there's evidence of a photo that included George Remus and F. Scott Fitzgerald and Al Capone and the mayor of Louisville and the police chief. There's like this infamous picture of the Sealbach Seal Hotel. Hotel in downtown Louisville, and it's yes. proven that Fitzgerald spent a lot of time there. He was actually, I think, stationed there in the army, and um, the Al Capone was definitely there, and I don't know, but there mm-hmm. are definitely some parallels mm-hmm. between. And Daisy talks about the drug businesses, and she um, she talks about like she says that um, he owns some drugstores, lots of them. It's just kind of a little twist on that, and then that um, there's a quote in the Gatsby about newly rich people are just big bootleggers. I mean, there's so there's so many things, and um, Chicago's mentioned a lot. And I guess the other things about the comparison with um, Gatsby, the, the, which I've read many times and wrote a couple papers on it in high school and stuff like that, the big things are they both wanted to be accepted in the higher echelons of society. And they thought money could buy their way in, and they got their money through bootlegging. But 
they never really were accepted. People came to their parties, but they weren't ever considered the upper crust. They were new money. They were definitely new money. The second thing is the swimming pools. I mean, yes. the swimming pool is a major symbol in The Great Gatsby. And the first thing anybody who talks to you about Remus's place in Price Hill, they'll mention is the indoor swimming pool that was very extravagant, built on by him at a cost of $100,000, $100, which was quite, it would be a, you know, more like a, more than a million now. And uh, people talked about it all the time. They still talk about it. And then the third thing is they were both done wrong by a woman. Few Americans were more rags to riches than George Remus. Born outside of Berlin and comes to America at age five, ultimately ends up in Chicago. We ask our third guest, Mark Plegman, about young George Remus, how he gets involved in the pharmaceutical game and later becomes a lawyer. Born in Germany, near 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 Berlin, in a small town called Fredericksburg, um, he got into it out of economic necessity. His father worked in a lumber yard, and he came down with rheumatoid arthritis, and so there were three girls at home, and a and a brother, um, Herman, and George, and the mother and father. And so, he, when he was 14 years old, he went to work to support the family at a pharmacy that his uncle ran in Chicago on Milwaukee and uh, Chicago Avenue. And he served as a clerk for a while, but he learned the business. And then he went to school in the pharmacy college at night and got a pharmacy diploma, a pharmacy degree. And later on, when it came to dealing with alcohol, he knew the chemistry of things. He knew whether the liquor was 100 proof, whether it was watered down or whatever, had things like wood alcohol in it. So he used that in the business as a bootlegger. Like we said, George Remus was a popular figure in Chicago. He held the record as an endurance swimmer, uh, a boxer. He actually held the record for the longest uh, winter swim in Lake Michigan. It's like five and a half, six and a half hours or something silly. Um, and he was married. He's married to his well, first wife, Lily, and they had a child. But Remus, he ends up meeting another woman. She works at a delicatessen. Her name's Emma Jean Holmes. Actually, uh, and we'll talk about Emma Jean. She becomes a major, a major part of, of this story. But he meets this delicatessen worker. She becomes his secretary. And eventually... Uh, he gets divorced from his wife. And in 1920, he marries Emma Jean Holm. They're married in, in June of 1920 in Newport, Kentucky. We ask our guests, uh, Joyce, and, Joyce and Julie, about Emma Jean Holmes, who now became Emma Jean Remus. Worked in a delicatessen in Chicago, and that's where Remus must have met her when he was working as a lawyer in Chicago. And he must have taken a shine to her and hired her to be his secretary. So they were probably carrying on an affair. And um, Remus actually divorced his first wife, Lillian, when he decided to move to Cincinnati. And Imogene moved with him. And uh, their wedding took place, Imogene and, and George Remus, on June 26th, 1920, 20. in Newport, Kentucky, where it was very easy to get um, married with, you know, not a lot of waiting, and I think it was sort of the Reno of its day. <laughs> Prohibition begins in January 1920. The 18th Amendment is ratified in 1919, and that amendment is codified in what's called the Volstead Act, named after the congressman who sponsored the, sponsored the bill. 
if you go back and you can listen to how Prohibition happened. That was our second episode ever, season one, Ohio versus Booze. How Prohibition happened in the first place, one of my favorite episodes with Beth Weinhart of the, of the local history center in Westerville, Ohio. And we talk about how Prohibition was entirely Ohio's fault. We talk about Wayne Wheeler and the Anti-Saloon League. Um, go back and listen to that episode, because we're going to be talking about today what happened after Prohibition. And we're going to be talking, and we talked to Mark about what was the Volstead Act. No person shall manufacture, sell, barter, transport, import, export, delivery, or furnish any intoxicating liquors. Now, intoxicating liquors was the term that they, they settled on. And there were 73 chapters to the Volstead Act. It was actually written by Wayne Wheeler, the head of the um, anti-saloon thing, but Andrew... Um, Wolfville had signed his name to it. Interestingly enough, he had been elected 13 times to Congress, and after he signed his name to this document, he never got elected again. <laughs> so the Volstead guy had, and Remus studied it and practically memorized the 73 paragraphs, and he found three loopholes for ways of getting whiskey. One was for commercial purposes, or hair tonics, all kind of things, which he wasn't interested in. The second was for religious purpose. Rabbis and priests could go and get from their pharmacy uh, wine for their religious service. But the big one was for medicinal purposes only. And if you looked at a case of the whiskey, there were three gallons in the case. It said on it, for medicinal purposes only. And this was his loophole to get the whiskey certificates to draw the whiskey out. Very little of it used for medicinal purposes. The legal system is rocked by prohibition. Remus finds himself on the front lines representing bootleggers and rum runners. He represents them in federal court, represents them locally, and he finds himself often in front of a judge, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, a former Ohioan from Millville, Ohio. Landis was known for giving large, large fines. Uh, He gave a giant fine to Standard Oil and to the Rockefellers um, when they were found to be in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. And he also would give Remus's clients uh, very large fines for their Prohibition and Volstead Act violations. Remus and, and Landis didn't get along. Landis would later become the baseball commissioner uh, who famously cleaned up baseball following the Black Sox scandal uh, that we talk about in the first season in Ohio versus baseball. Um, but Remus notices these clients that are not very bright are taking these $10,000, $15,000 fines, which are huge amounts of money back then, and they're just peeling off $1,000 bills to pay them. It's right there. And we talk about, we talk about Remus in, as a lawyer in the Prohibition world in the early 20s and how that gave him the idea that, hey, maybe I could do this. Maybe I could do it better. Remus would appear in a court to defend the people that had violated the Volstead Act. And um, they were really ordinary working class people, and as Remus pointed out, not very bright. And they were fined some things like $10,000 for a minor infraction and infuriated Remus because these people would come up and he'd fine them $10,000. They'd open their wallet and peer out 
pull out $1,000 bills and pay for it. And Reba said, this is ridiculous, you know, this sort of thing. So um, I think he was just, they, they hated each other. Because Remus would talk endlessly. He would talk for an hour, hour and a half in a final plea. And this drove Keensaw Mountain Landers crazy. George Remus decides to get into the bootlegging game. And he goes all in. He leans forward. And he begins buying up distilleries. He begins buying up pharmacies and trucks. But he's from Chicago. And he decides to move his operation to Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, which was you know, on the Ohio River, a very populous city, not that it isn't today, but an even more important city in American commerce at the time. But he simply looks at a map. It's one of those things, the geographical, you know, strategic location of Ohio, again, even more so in the 20s. But he's also near all the bonded warehouses, where all the whiskey that was being sold before Prohibition is now sitting, sitting unused, an untapped market. A huge amount of the, of the liquor in this country was within a two, three hundred mile radius of Cincinnati. Like we said, Remus marries his wife Emma Jean in Newport, Kentucky, and he moves to Cincinnati. We ask our guests, Mark and Joyce and Julie, you know, why Cincinnati? Was it just the location, or was it also that it had a very corrupt local government? Well, we have a um, a lot of German immigrants. Uh, that have that have moved to Cincinnati. We had um, a lot of Irish here that were living here at the time. And uh, Mark points out uh, to us too that the Jewish population was here. And you know you have you have this uh, thing where like they're still going to get their their beer and their whiskey. The immigrant culture. So yes, yeah. and he was shrewd because Remus could look around and see the 300 miles in either direction of Cincinnati was where you would find the distilleries. And there were a lot of um, drug companies. And he, he mapped it out, and he knew exactly where to go. He also had you know kind of a vertical lock on things in bootlegging. It was also pretty centrally located for distributing afterwards. And he, he, he realized that he could cover a lot of the eastern United States mm-hmm. from a more central location. Three things. Cincinnati was within 300 miles of... 80% of the distilled whiskey in government bonded warehouses. One of every four people in Cincinnati was of German ancestry, first or second generation, then the Irish, then the Italian, then the Jewish. You can't believe how many new rabbis were created in that period of time. The third thing was Cincinnati from 1785 to 1925 had the most corrupt government in the country. Okay? It was under the boss Cox regime. Okay, and so they were thrown out of office in 1925. Okay, but that those three years, there, he had 3,000 employees, a thousand of whom were policemen. And in 1925, when the new government came in, 59 police officers came forward and said they were on Remus's payroll. Some towns were wetter than others when it comes to prohibition. Places had more speakeasies. Some place like New York, it was just out in the open. But that was kind of the situation in Cincinnati as well. Uh, we talked to Joyce and, and, and Julie about prohibition in Cincinnati. How wide open and wild was it? As was she there. mentioned, it was full of Germans and Irish and Italians. So exactly. they weren't going to give up 
And we've heard the number of 3,000 speakeasies in Cincinnati at one time. They were also called blind pigs, and that was apparently a way to convince, or to, to pretend you were convincing the um, authorities that it was something else. They would advertise as a thing to see, a blind pig, and that let you know that there was mm -hmm. alcohol being served there. And there's a story also about Carrie Nation, who was would come in and just bust the glass in the in the bars and... She, um, in the, uh, you know, prohibition mode, she was very much angry at, um, when she came through, at the amount of places that you could get alcohol. In and it, it, Yes, in Cincinnati. And she was literally exhausted and just had to, like, stop her efforts because it was not going to work. There are pictures but, of Vine Street that are just, Vine Street is the main street down through downtown Cincinnati, and it was bar after bar after bar mm -hmm. after bar. And then when you got to over the Rhine, which is uh, the was the German neighborhood, now it's the pool neighborhood. But at that time, it was beer garden after beer garden after beer garden. Mm -hmm. So they did not take well to prohibition at all. We set our beer for the episode. It's the Municipal Brewworks for having the walk in the park. Uh, we also had their Scout IPA, which was very, very good. Um, a bunch of the Walter Melon, a bunch of good beers down there. Again, municipal.beer, downtown Hamilton. You can't miss it. It's right on the river. Uh, very cool place. We sat down with Jim Goodman, not just to talk about his beer, but also to talk about Hamilton during Prohibition. Much like Cincinnati, also was a very wet city one of the wettest cities in Ohio. We talked to Jim about the history of Prohibition in Southwest Ohio. So we're sitting here with Jim Goodman, uh, the owner, brewer, operator of Municipal Brew Works in downtown Hamilton, Ohio, or on the banks of the, of the Great Miami River uh, in downtown Hamilton. Jim, tell us about just the name of the brewery. You know, Municipal Brew Works has got this great logo and just this incredible building the history of this this building that we're sitting in today the building we're in used to be the city municipal building or the city building also called the frederick mueller building it was built in 1933 so the folks that built union terminal in downtown cincinnati when they were done with that came up here and built this mm. and from 1933 up to the early 90s this place served as the city building for just about everything so um, you've got jail cells here, city council chambers. We're sitting in the old fire station. Um, and it sat dormant from early 90s for uh, quite a while. And then they were looking for purposes for it. So we're, I'm looking out the back here towards the river, these, these giant uh, garage doors. I mean, most breweries have to put these in. Were these already here when you guys got here for the yes, fire trucks? Yes. So this is where the uh, fire trucks were. Um, the building was in really bad shape. Um, we kind of took it over, put the new garage doors in, but uh, that was one of the main selling points for us was the location, the fact that this was at one point in time the center of city activity and we felt like we could make it the center of city activity again and offer this massive outdoor patio that uh, yeah, you, know, you can enjoy the weather and, and have yourself a beer. Hamilton has a, a very fascinating history with beer, with alcohol, and with prohibition like we're talking about today. Tell us a little bit about, you know, Hamilton, which you called uh, Little Chicago. Yeah. So um, from a historic perspective, 
Butler County itself uh, and malt production, barley production, was uh, the number two producing county for just about every year prior to the Civil War all the way up to Prohibition. At one point in time, there were six maltsters in um, Hamilton uh, producing tons and tons of, of malted barley specifically for the brewing process. Um, then you had the various brewers here in Hamilton. Cincinnati Brewing Company was actually here in Hamilton, and they called it Cincinnati Brewing Company because they weren't sure people would understand where Hamilton was. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, it used to be where the current police station is uh, near the river. And from a, a quantity perspective, you know, we're going to do maybe 150 to 175 barrels in a month. Uh, they were doing 400 barrels a day. So that's macro brewing right there. That is huge. They were basically the Budweiser InBev prior to that. Right. Uh, and then Prohibition comes and basically wipes the town out. Um, so people talk about, you know, the paper plant shutting down and, and industry leaving, you know, these Midwest towns like Hamilton and unemployment rising. Really, the first thing to kill industry here was, uh, was Prohibition. Well, of course, the mafia comes in and says, look, we've got an, a, a town of unemployed people that... Uh, you know what? They all know how to make booze. Yeah, and a town of unemployed brewers. Right, and now, <laughs> and now, you know, this place uh, affectionately became known as Little Chicago. I've only got a couple of these beers left. I've drank them all. Uh, <laughs> tell me about the walk in the park, because uh, you know, there's nothing like a really just like solid pilsner to have in your lineup, and this is yeah. this is a really good drink. So the walk in the park is that's one of my home brews. My friend uh, and I, Brandon Lane, used to um, brew that in my garage for for many years. We had a little bit more of a non-PC name for it, though, because it was a Pilsner. We decided to call it, I hope she's on the pills. We're like, yeah, we really, we really cannot call it that here. So right when we came out with that, Markham Park, uh, Caddy Corner to us, had opened. And it was also the start of the baseball season. So I said, you know, it's kind of a double meaning. You get a, a walk in the ballpark or a walk in the park here. So um, it is it's a also good, it's an a good easy, walk in beer. Yeah, and it's an easy <laughs> drinking beer. And now that we're open container here, you know, you can actually get a walk in the park and literally go walk in the park so you guys are adora you're yes a, wow yeah. i didn't know that yeah we're adora uh, designated outdoor refreshment area george remus was the perfect storm for the volstead act and prohibition he was a knowledgeable criminal defense attorney who knew the Volstead Act for like the back of his hand. He had it memorized. He knew the loopholes. Before he was a lawyer, he spent a decade of his life as a pharmacist in Chicago. And that was one of the main ways that you got legal alcohol, was through a doctor's note. You could get a pint of whiskey from your pharmacist. Hey, Doc, I'm having trouble sleeping. Sometimes some of the stuff you hear people getting medical marijuana licenses back when they first started, you know, out in California and Colorado. Um, people would use similar type excuses to get slips for, for alcohol. And so he started buying up all the bonded warehouses. He started buying up the distilleries in the, you know, in that two or 300 mile area we talked about outside Cincinnati. And he also started creating his own drug companies, some more real than others, his own pharmacies, he became buyer and seller. He called this, he called it the circle, uh, this kind of vertical integration 
where he controlled and monopolized the whiskey trade. And sometimes, you know, as he's and he goes all in, like you said, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on this, on these businesses. Um, but also, sometimes just shipments would get lost, you know, or someone would hijack his own shipment. You know, he'd purpose, purposely lose a truck full of booze. Um, but as the buyer and the seller, there was no aggrieved party. It was just, you know, oops, that's that's too bad, and they would move on. But using this, the circle, as Remus called it, he gets started in the bootlegging game. We asked Mark, you know, how did his business operate? First of all, he knew nothing about running bootlegging. He hired two Jewish fellows, gangsters from New York, who had been bringing in whiskey from Mexico to the dry states in the South. And so he hired them to set up his operation. He, it's described in Ken Burns' is called The Circle. It was a way to get complete control of the whole bootlegging industry without any middlemen. So number one, you bought a distillery. He bought some 12 to 14 distilleries. Number two, you bought pharmacies, but you bought ph wholesale pharmaceutical companies where you could get mass shipments of liquor to it. Okay. The third thing, he bought a fleet of trucks, of armored trucks, 27 trucks, plus uh, limousines, uh, Pierce Arrows, Cadillacs, Buicks, and that sort of thing, that were armor-plated and had heavy springs in the back. And they would deliver to prominent citizens at their home. They didn't have to go through the embarrassment of going to Death, Death Valley Farm. Yeah. So he would basically produce it, own it, and ship it himself. And no middlemen involved. When Remus moves to Cincinnati with Emma Jean, one of the first things he did was buy this giant mansion at 825 Hermosa Avenue. Again, our, our guest, Julie Hoshkiss, Joyce Meyer, it was in the Price Hill area. They run the Price Hill Historical Society. Um, Price Hill, just west of downtown Cincinnati. But the house used to belong to you know a very popular brewer in Cincinnati, Henry Lackman. Uh, this house was built you know, far back from the street. He called it the Marble Palace. He put in an amazing pool. Talk about the pool. Um, and, and just you know this house that he spent... You know, the pool itself was like $100,000. Uh, he would throw the finest parties. He was Gatsby from the Great Gatsby uh, in Cincinnati. We talked to our guests about the mansion, uh, about this incredible pool, and, and we talked to Mark about some of those parties and the fact that, you know, is it true that Remus was actually a teetotaler? Never drank, never smoked. Uh, could the king of the bootleggers be a non-drinker? An absolute teetotaler, not only a teetotaler, but he never smoked. In fact, if you went to one of the parties at the mansion, you had to go outside or go to a special smoke room because he wouldn't allow smoking in the house, in the marble mansion, as they called his house. The estate of Henry Lackman, who was a brewery, brewery baron in Cincinnati, and um, it, Remus bought it not long after he moved down here in 1920, and expanded it quite a lot. I mean, it was already a big mansion, but he added the swimming pool, which mm -hmm. was indoor, so he added a whole wing for that. Mm -hmm. He added stables, and there were apparently beautiful gardens and covered walkways that had a lot of plants and things in them. He had landscapers and things. Yeah, so. mm -hmm. yeah there's some good pictures in the book and here at the historical oh, yes. site. Awesome porch. I like a good porch. <laughs> beautiful porch. And uh, there is a little something about the pool that's important. We... I like to research through the newspapers and get sure. a lot of articles and things for us here for when people come in. And I did find an article that was about the um, person who was installing the pool. 
and they weren't getting paid. And they complained, uh, Imogene had complained about the price. The pool was in her name, apparently, all the contracts and things. And she kept changing her mind, which is why the price went up to $100,000. $100,000 in 1922, <laughs> that's a lot. It is. Um, and there, there's a funny side story, or just in the pictures, both of the house and of the pool, there's a dog. Yeah, you can see, see the, the dog picture. in the book, yeah. The dog is apparently the brother of President Harding's dog. Uh, Laddie Interesting boy. connection. Laddie boy. Laddie boy, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's weird that I know President Harding's dog's name. <laughs> it is weird. George Remus was a millionaire. And he wasn't exactly uh, stingy with the money. He threw amazing parties. Uh, and his most famous party had to be the New Year's Eve party at the mansion in 1922. Uh, you know, over a hundred different couples from the you know the, the hierarchy of Cincinnati society. Um, each woman at the party was given keys to a new car. All the gentlemen were given you know diamond stick pins. Uh, they had the pool. They had the drinks. Um, this party lived in infamy for just how crazy and. How awesome it was. We talked to, to Julie and, and, and Joyce about New Year's Eve 1922. It was New Year's Eve 1921, so going into 1922, and he was at the height of his, uh, well, breaking in the money. I mean, there's there's been talk that he paid $20 million in bribes to various people, but he profited between 45 and $75 million. He was making money like crazy. So he threw this big party and he invited all the, you know, up and coming and not established as well, um, everyone he could get to come from Cincinnati. And the big story is it went on till dawn and at dawn, all the ladies were given the keys to new Pontiac, uh, Pontiac cars. So they drove home in their brand new cars. There's also been talk of that they they were given pearls and things like that. The band, and I'm trying to think of the name. His name was Gus. Gus Schmitz. Gus Schmitz band performed, and they were all given diamond stick pins just for being there and playing the music. I assume they got paid as well, but he was fairly lavish with his gifts and um, just the whole setting. I mean, we really have never heard of a menu or anything, but right. from the pictures that we've seen, there's multiple courses and you know you have to expect there was mm -hmm. every kind of delicacy that he could manage to mm -hmm. get uh, brought into Cincinnati he was definitely trying to make an impression and they said that uh, people like the mayor and the police chief left the party with a bottle of whiskey under both arms and everyone went away happy but Remus was high profile too the problem with so many of these gangsters during prohibition uh, you know always finding their way into the newspapers so the way that you got out of stuff like that was you had to bribe people. And it wasn't just a local beat cop. George Remus always thought bigger, and his operation required him to act bigger. He had employed nearly 3,000 people, it said, spent it's estimated at about $20 million in just bribes alone. But his main source of, of protection was the United States Justice Department. They controlled prohibition. And President Henry, uh, Warren G. Harding from Marion, Ohio, he had some underlings called the Ohio Gang. Basically, he hired a bunch of his friends to be in the cabinet, uh, people who helped him on the campaign. And his Justice Department was run by Attorney General Harry Doherty. He was from Washington Courthouse, Ohio. 
had become a, a major supporter uh, of Harding years ago, ran his presidential campaign, was an attorney in Washington courthouse, and now the highest-ranking law enforcement officer in the country. It's not to say that Harding knew about these types of bribes. I, I think he probably did not. But there's no way that I can be convinced that Attorney General Dory didn't know about it. And he knew about it because he lived with a man named Jess Smith, also from Washington Courthouse, Ohio. Jess Smith was the connection between Remus and between the U.S. Justice Department. Smith would meet with Remus. When they first met in the early 20s, Jess Smith basically said, I can promise you freedom from prosecution, freedom from, from ever having to go to jail. And right there on the spot, George Remus paid him $50,000. Like we said, that number was estimated to go up to $400,000 or $500,000. He would meet Jess Smith in Columbus. He would meet Jess Smith in Washington, New York, always making bribes and getting these withdrawal permits from the Justice Department that he'd then you know, recreate um, and, and or just make fake you know, withdrawal permits for the liquor in these bonded warehouses. But Jess Smith in the Ohio game, we asked Mark Plegman about the crooked justice system run by Central Ohio's Harry Doherty and his underhanded agent, Jess Smith. Jess Smith was an assistant to Harry Doherty, who got Harding election, elected. They ran his campaign. And when they went to Washington, he took a lot of people from Washington Courthouse, Ohio, one of whom was Jess, Jess Smith. And, uh, of course, Doherty himself was there. Um, he was the gopher, the go-to man if you wanted to get something from the attorney general. He had no official office. He had no official salary. Right. But he was the person, if you wanted to get a bribe, you would go through him to, to Doherty. Now, there's never been any proof that Doherty accepted the money, but that's hard to believe. He gave uh, at least $260,000 in bribes, usually paying in lim amounts of 50000 at a time where he'd peel off $50,000 in pain. He also got, Jesse Smith got a cut on every case of whiskey that he issued a certificate for, and another $250,000 there. So he making well over a half a million dollars. Whiskey. What you had to do is if you wanted to withdraw whiskey from the bonded warehouses, you had to apply at the little greenhouse on K Street in Washington to get a withdrawal permit. And you'd get as many withdrawal permits as, as gallons you wanted to take out. Okay? So that's where you got your whiskey certificates. And a lot of them were fake. They were forged and uh, that, that's how that, you know, the Ohio gang operated out of that little house. Thanks for listening to Ohio v. The World. Every episode this season, we will bring you an Ohio History Connection Minute that is highlight the work being done to spark discovery of Ohio's stories. The Ohio History Connection, formerly the Ohio Historical Society, preserves and shares the history of the state of Ohio. In each episode, we'll talk with an employee of the OHC or someone from the over 50 sites we manage across the Buckeye State. I urge you to visit our museum, the Ohio History Center in Columbus, and become a member. Go to ohiohistory.org slash join. So thanks for listening. Hope to see you at the History Center this year, and go to ohiohistory.org slash join for membership info. This week we're talking to Stephen George. He's a special advisor to the CEO of the Ohio History Connection and kind of the resident historian. Um, awesome guy to sit down and talk to, and we kind of talked to him about some of the projects he's working on. Uh, it was Stephen who really carried out the 
the bicentennial barn paintings that you see all over the, the you know the state. All eighty eight counties have one of those eighteen oh three to two thousand three uh, centennial barn murals. Uh, he's also uh, very wise and knowledgeable about presidents, so we'll talk to him about Harding, and also talk to him about what he's doing now. He's expanded this program into an Ohio history barn mural program. Um, just saw a great mural that was just unveiled of, of Tecumseh, and they're doing new murals every week, every couple of weeks, it seems like. We sat down with Stephen to talk to him, not just about what he's doing, but also his knowledge of Warren G. Harding. I never really set out in life to be famous for barn painting, but uh, it's the fates have decreed that I, I kind of developed this niche here. Um, but uh, I was the I served for the entirety of the Ohio Bicentennial Commission's existence, and one of our key activities was to paint the bicentennial logo on a barn in each of the 88 counties. And let me tell you something, Alex, it was not any picnic finding a barn in Cuyahoga County. <laughs> and I think we found the last one. I don't know if it's still up there. Where was it? Um, I think it was in Fairview Park, if I'm not mistaken. But I may, I may be mistaken about that. Um, it was not a very robust barn, um, but it was a barn. It was something more than a garage. And... Uh, but that program was hugely successful. And we had, a, at that time, a young man who was painting these barns. His name was Scott Hagen. When he started, I think he was 18 years old. Um, now he is um, uh, 40, I think, and has a family. But we are, we've reinvented that, that program and trying to capitalize on success by having um, Scott paint iconic Ohio Ohioans, Ohio accomplishments, Ohio symbols, Ohio success stories. We asked Stephen about, about President Warren Harding from Marion, Ohio. Um, it was his Attorney General Harry Doherty who was caught up in all these schemes with Remus. Um, but Stephen and I share a, the same opinion of Harding, that he really did get a lot of things done. He's consistently rated in the bottom five of presidents of all time. Um, but there was a lot of accomplishments, a lot of things that people don't remember. When he died in 1923, um, he was revered. It wasn't late until later in the decade that all these, these things came to light, and his name has been dragged through the mud ever since. You know, I think Harding is very interesting because I see in Warren Harding the beginning of the American century, in a way. You know, he came into office at right after the end of the First World War. And if you look at how people dressed, say, in 1910, and then you look to see how people dressed in 1920, it was radically different. People's expectations of life changed. And there were all these modern inventions that suddenly were coming on full, uh, with full force, like the radio like the automobile. Harding declared his the age of the automobile. I think that well, uh, President Harding kind of gets a bad rap, and we all know what we're talking about here, but there was accomplishment laid on accomplishment laid on accomplishment. And it's, it, to, to my mind, if he has to take credit for the scandal in his administration, then he also should also get credit for the many powerful successes that his administration accomplished.
thanks to Stephen for joining us. Uh, again, huge fan of his. Always awesome to sit down and talk to him. And when you see one of those barns painted around the state, uh, he's the guy to thank. George Remus becomes, like we said, the king of the bootlegger. You might remember him. He's in you know episodes of, of Boardwalk Empire, uh, which was a really cool show. Like we said, he's, he's Jay Gatsby from The Great Gatsby. But he starts living this gangster life. And Remus dealt with the biggest gangsters of the day, Al Capone. You know, and on the East Coast, he dealt with all the New York families because he had the best liquor. And you could count on it. The price was reasonable because he ran such a large operation. And like we said, it was guaranteed quality. We asked Mark Plegman just about George Remus as a gangster. Al Capone came there, Bugsy Siegel, Lucky Luciano. Most of the well-known gangsters came there because he guaranteed 100-proof alcohol, unadulterated, uncut down, with no wood alcohol in it. So they came to him to, to do that. But he, um, Bugsy Siegel started in Las Vegas with Remus Money. Hijacked his own truck. That's a classic or re- gangster move. Reported as hijacked, or it was in an accident. So he had to make a report on it. But most of the time he said it was a hijacking. He almost got killed in one of the hijackings on the suspension bridge, the historic bridge, the Roebling Bridge in Cincinnati. He was trying to stop some bootleggers from robbing his trucks coming from Covington Distillery, and he damn near got killed. Even though Remus was still making all these payments to Jess Smith and the Ohio gang, the feds start closing in on him. He's too high profile. Everybody knows where he's getting this stuff. He runs everything out of a a farm out on what's now called Queen City Avenue in Cincinnati called Death Valley. Set back from the road, uh, armed guards. That's what not only he, he distilled it there, but he also, you know, held it and made sales and had underground tunnels and all that stuff. Death Valley was a crazy place. But he's drawn too much attention. And he draws the attention of Assistant Attorney General Mabel Walker Wildebrandt. This California, um, you know, no-nonsense Assistant Attorney General, she's the one who's not crooked. And she seeks out other agents and, and other you know, AGs across the country who aren't crooked. And she's almost running her own operation out of the Justice Department to not just clean up the Justice Department, but to go get the major bootleggers in the United States. And she turns her focus on George Remus. We asked Mark about Mabel Walker Willebrand, the Justice Department warrior against prohibition. She was a farm girl from Kansas who went to Los Angeles, got a job as a teacher, an elementary school teacher, and then went to law school at night at University of Southern California. And then she started practicing law and um, for the um, police court, prostitution, gambling, that sort of thing. And she did such a fantastic job that her law school professor at USC uh, and all the judges in Southern California recommended her to the Justice Department as the assistant attorney general. Now, the reason she got that job is the man in charge of the Treasury Department, the one first part of it, was a drinker. The man in charge of the Justice Department, Doherty, was a drinker. So they decided they would pick a woman because of all women had done with the Women's Christian Temperance Union and been the main supporters of prohibition. They gave her the job. 
1924 and 1925, she prosecuted 48,000 cases. So you asked me, was she aggressive? She prosecuted 48,000 cases and got 39,000 convictions. Wow. And so, and she was really a believer, you know, in, she really didn't believe in the prohibition itself, but she believed in the law and the law had to be enforced. Yeah. And if she could get the big guys, and there were three big guys, the Savannah Eight, the Mobile Six, and Remus is 13 people, and she got all three of them, okay? So she was a real star. Finally, the jig was up. Death Valley's raided in 1923. George Remus is arrested. In this Death Valley raid, um, multiple organizations working together, but his, whis his whiskey and his liquor was so prevalent across the country, everybody knew where it came from. Everybody knew George Remus. We talk about the raid on Death Valley out on Queen City Avenue. People reported it to um, Mabel Willebrand. In other words, she got word of it. Well, actually what happened is in Indiana, they arrested some rum runners. And, and they, these two guys, they, two different occasions they ran, they said, we'll make a deal with you. You show us where this is, draw us a picture, et cetera, and we'll go. So they came to Cincinnati, the head of the Prohibition in Chicago, the head in Indiana, and they told the local Prohibition guy to meet him at the Sinton Hotel at such a diamond place. Downtown and they, Cincinnati. And he was, on, he was on Remus's payroll, the local guy. So they said to him, look, we can't arrest him. We can't do it because we're from Illinois and we're from Indiana, but you can, and you're going to get a, a search warrant for this or you're not going to leave this room. And so he forced him to get a search warrant, and the three of them arrived at the raid uh, to, to raid the place. Wow, he was actually charged not with bootlegging. He was charged with conspiracy to violate the articles of the uh, Volstead Act. Act and operating a nuisance and by the, the whole bootleg Property. operation. Yeah. So that, that, that was a one-year sentence, and the other was a two-year sentence and a $10,000 fine, which was chump change for him at the time. And as they say in their book, uh, Remembering Remus and Price Hill, you know, maybe it was his business acumen or maybe it was his vast knowledge of the Volstead Act and its loopholes. George Remus is actually never arrested or charged with bootlegging. But like a lot of the gangsters in the 20s and 30s, he's arrested and charged for evading taxes and for bribing of public officials, both of which were really good charges. And Mabel Walker Wildebrandt is the one who's going to pursue those charges in court. But think about Remus. He's been paying almost a half a million dollars to the Harding administration. He's been waiting for this day. He's been preparing for this day. And as he talks more and more, Jeff Smith stops, you know, stops returning his calls, misses a meeting. And ultimately, Remus realizes he's in trouble. And especially on the morning in June 1923, when Jeff Smith commits suicide. And just like that, George Remus's get-out-of-jail-free card is dead with his head inside his own wastebasket. We talked to Mark about the end of Jess Smith, the death of the Ohio gang, and ultimately George Remus's conviction and jail sentence. People were saying he's acting funny. He's not himself. I, I don't know if he's demented or what. And his boss was going to be interrogated in a Senate hearing, and he was afraid he was going to be called up to testify at the Senate hearings about Harry Doherty. And he committed suicide. 
put a gun to his head, and they found him in the room with his head lying in, in, a, in, a, in a wastebasket there, I mean, bent down over. Was that, that in D.C.? That was in, that was in his uh, house in D.C., yes. In fact, he lived in the same house with Harry Doherty because Harry Doherty's wife was an invalid, and Jess Smith, one of his job was to take care of her. Um, so that promise of no jail, no prosecution kind of goes oh, down the drain. it goes down the drain, yeah. Remus goes to the federal penitentiary near Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, but George Remus is doing two years of hard time in the federal pen. And it's here in Atlanta that he meets Franklin Dodge. Dodge would become Remus's arch enemy. He would help bring down Remus's entire empire from within. But we asked our, our guests about who was Special Agent Franklin Dodge. Dodge worked for the Justice Department, and he was in what was called the Bureau of Investigation, which became the FBI, okay? When Mabel found about what was going on at the prison in Atlanta, she sent him down there to talk to people to find out what's going on. So he went to Remus, and he said, what's going on there? He says, I'll tell you what's going on here if you promise to get me out of here before my two years are up. He said, we've bribed the, the, the Savannah's eight and the Mobus six. We all have bribed the warden, the assistant warden, and the Catholic chaplain. We get special privileges. We would go out in town. Machine would go in town to restaurants with him. She'd come down and furnish his, his uh, when it wasn't a cell, it was an apartment. She furnished it for him and cooked meals for him. They conspire to get rid of his all of his uh, distilleries and sell things off. And, and like Julie mentioned earlier, um, the amount of money that he had, where did, it, <clears throat> where did that $2 million uh, go? I mean, where, where did it disappear to? And um, he, we do know that we were just uh, reviewing the public auction that was held at that time at the estate, and they must have done that. <clears throat> and you could see all the things that were being listed they were unloading things just like his dog. They were selling his dog statues. There was one statue mentioned that was um, the Three Graces. It's a famous statue, and that was probably gone for a lot of money. But um, there are even rumors that she would sell something like a distillery for a dollar. She did any. She was spiteful to him, I think. And um, you know. The things that you hear later after, you know, during the trial and um, after she's murdered, you hear that um, they did not get along and they did not have a good uh, marriage. I think a lot of what she did was to get back at him. George Remus had given power of attorney to his wife, Emma Jean. And while she stuck by his side while he was in jail, at some point during those two years, working with Franklin Dodge, she sold him out. And I mean sold him out. She sold everything distilleries, cars, everything but the house. And that house, when George Remus gets out of jail in 1927, is stripped bare. Remus was distraught. Anyone who talked to him, any of those news reports, people knew about what happened to Remus and his wife had filed for divorce and robbed him blind. The king of the bootleggers had hit rock bottom. On the morning of October 6, 1927, while the Remuses were supposed to be on their way to court 
for a divorce proceeding. George Remus has his driver run Emma Jean and his daughter Ruth off the road. It happens in Eden Park. We're, we're sitting here drinking the, the walk in the park. Uh, Pilsner from, from Municipal Brew Works. Well, this was the walk in the park we were talking about. October 6, 1927, when George Remus murders his wife, Emma Jean. It was the day that Emma Jean was supposed to go downtown to court to file for her divorce from Remus. And she was staying at the Alms Hotel in Walnut Hills, which is on the east side of town. We don't know whether George was back in his west side mansion or staying at a hotel or what, but he had his car and driver. His driver, George Klug, was always with him when he was um, not in jail. <laughs> and uh, Imogene and her daughter, Ruth, who was not Remus's daughter, was his stepdaughter, took a taxi down, heading downtown. And from Walnut Hills, you go through Eden Park, which is a very big city park in Cincinnati. And that's where Remus caught up with them and instructed his chauffeur to follow that car and really pretty much ran the taxi off the road. Remus jumped out. Imogene jumped out and started running, and Remus shot her. And In Eden Park. In Eden Park, yep. In about 8 o'clock in the morning, as we understand it, it was rush hour, essentially, as much as there was a rush hour in 1927. And um, there was a crowd. There were a lot of people there. And... The, his chauffeur took off because he realized that Remus had just shot his wife and he wasn't going to get involved. No one would help them until, I can't remember the person's name, but there was one man who came forward and helped Ruth get her mother in another taxi and take her to, I think it was the Bethesda Hospital, which was nearby. And she died on the operating table. And meanwhile, Remus hitched a ride went downtown to the police station. The first person he got a ride with thought he wanted to go to the train station and took him there, but he wound up at the police station, turned himself in, and said, I've killed my wife, and I'm here to admit it. And he was taken in and booked. So many times in history, and even on this show, we talk about the trial of the century. The trial of the century this, trial of the century that. But this was Cincinnati's trial of the century, at least the trial of the decade of the 1920s, the George Remus murder trial. We talk with Mark Plegman about, well, what defense does he have? Multiple people saw him. He turned himself in to the police. Uh, the gun was never found, but, but that, that's about it. People saw him do it. He turned himself in and said he did it. So we talked to Mark about what could possibly be Remus's defense strategy. And was he really going to represent himself? Person. No, that was only an accident of the trial. Remus decided that he wanted to be his own defense attorney. Said Taft people objected and said, how can we do it? He's a convicted felon, and you're going to let him select the jury for this trial? Nothing doing. And the judge, who was very inexperienced, Chester Shook, said, well, if he can keep these two personas separately, <laughs> um, this is okay, and we can go ahead and do that. But they, they did it in Boardwalk Empire, but that's all made up. So it's really because he would talk about his client, Remus, when he was the right. attorney. Or judge. he would say an empty chair, point over to the defendant, and George Remus over there when he's talking to the jury. On the morning of November 14th, 1927, jury selection began in the murder trial of George Remus. The judge was Judge Chester Shook, and there's spectators. The place is full. New York Times, Chicago Tribune, Cleveland Plain Dealer, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Washington Post, they're all there. 
Remus is representing himself. He has co-counsel. It's actually his birthday. It's his 53rd birthday on November 14th, 1927. He has co-counsel Charles Elston, like we talked about. The prosecutor is Charles Taft. The Taft family, so prominent in Cincinnati, even to this day, uh, a governor, and obviously Charles Taft's father was the uh, sitting uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice and the former president, William Howard Taft. Charles Taft was really a rising star uh, in his early 30s, uh, a rising star in the political world in Hamilton County in Cincinnati. The jurors are picked, opening statements are made, and it's here that Elston reveals that they will be using this, this temporary insanity, this transitory insanity theory. We talk with, with our guests about, about the trial. It was fascinating. Front page news every single day. Remus would you know, have outbursts and the witnesses would, would cry and people came in to, famous people came in to, to vouch for George Remus' character witnesses. He wanted to plead justifiable homicide. And his assistant, Charles Elston, was a top lawyer and said, Ohio doesn't provide for that, especially since you admitted doing it. You've got to come up with something else. And so Blanche Watson, who's his secretary, is going to be in charge of bringing the witnesses in. And she brought a lot of lawyers, district attorneys, judge from Chicago in, including Clarence Darrow, okay, to testify in his behalf. So those were witnesses on his side. And there was a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch had done a long series on those Remus. Are great articles, yeah. And he said that Remus at times, when you mentioned Franklin Dodge and her together, would go bonker and he'd have a brain blast or something yeah. like that, the term he used. Okay. So the key witness, there were t- 24 people said that they witnessed a the crime. They didn't. They drove by. They did not. Only one person saw the murder, and that was Ruth. And they put Ruth on the stand, and Ruth blew the case for him. How so? Because Elston, who, and the question was, was Remus going to cross-examine his stepdaughter or was Elston going to? Well, not good, good lawyer, bad lawyer. Let's do the good lawyer. He said, Miss, Miss Remus, and he, she hated the name Remus. She absolutely despised the name Remus. He said, is it true that you told the press that when your father was up there in this struggle with your mother that he was acting crazy, he was acting insane? And she said, yes. Bingo, there goes the trial. On December 20th, 1927, closing arguments were finished. George Remus spoke for hours, talking about all different kinds of subjects. Um, but I want to quote just briefly from, from Charles Taft. The prosecutor says when he talks about Remus the day before and that day, his closing arguments, he says he did everything but sing Jingle Bells. It's right, right around Christmas. They appealed to those among you who are German descent. I know Germans well enough to know they can't be swayed by such appeals. He appealed to Catholicism. He made speeches on the Volstead Act. There's only one issue here. This was a cold-blooded murder. He shot down his wife when she was on her way to court to settle in a civilized way the difficulties that existed between them. He followed his victim through the park, placed a pistol against her pulsing body, and killed her. It's pretty compelling stuff. And really a trial that had become a a real circus with all kinds of different things being let in and and all kinds of different witnesses that had nothing to do with the single act that George Remus 
you know, that George Remus did perpetrate in Eden Park. But the case goes to the jury. We talked to our guest Mark Plegeman one last time about the verdict. It comes in 19 minutes. Or we asked Mark, is that true? 19 minutes? And George Remus is found not guilty. Not guilty of murder of his wife, Emma Jean Holmes. The judge sent the jury out for deliberation. They came back in a very short time, 15 minutes, and he said, have you made some decision? He said, yes, uh, we've named a foreman for the jury, but we'd like to know if we could go to lunch. Well, the pipes broke out in laughter because they wanted their last free lunch from Hamilton County, okay? <laughs> so he said, come back in an hour and a half. Now, during that first time, they had already made up their minds. And if they had been allowed to have an acquittal, they would have voted for an acquittal. They felt sorry for him, okay? They were seen weeping going back into the deliberation room. So they came back in an hour and a half, and in 19 minutes, they, they took a vote, and they came back and said, we find George Remus uh, not guilty solely on the basis of temporary insanity. Uh, well, there was bedlam in the court, courtroom when that decision. People were yelling and screaming, congratulating Alston and Remus. They went up to a cell and were up in a cell there celebrating him going there. Some of the books I read said Remus's acquittal was as tense as it was the day, 68 years later, when O.J. Simpson was acquitted. Prosecutor Taft called the, the verdict a travesty, and his political career would never be the same. These jurors were celebrating with Remus outside the courthouse. American justice, I thank you, he yelled out in court following the verdict. But that not guilty, you know, it had a, a, had a downside to it. It was by reason of insanity. And though Remus was not guilty, he was remanded to the Lima County uh, Mental Health Hospital. And he gets to the sanitarium, as they called him back then, um, at the end of 1927. We were doing an interview for our next episode, Episode 3, Ohio vs. Black Power. We are talking with Jim Robinell, great author, lawyer from Cleveland. Um, and he had a connection to Remus. It was his grandfather, attorney Francis Durbin, who represented Remus in Lima. Remus tries to get out of jail. Um, he tries to say that I'm not insane and I can prove it. And it's Robinelt's grandfather, Francis Durbin, who helps him get out after just six months. Not guilty by reason of insanity. And the, the country is outraged. This is really, this is the, the OJ case of its day. Total outrage. And the... Um, the judge then sends him to the probate judge because he's been declared temporarily insane. And the judge said, well, if you're insane, you're going to go to the Lima State Hospital for the criminally insane. So up, the, up to Lima he goes, and he hires my grandfather, Francis Durbin was his name, to represent him. And Francis files a writ of habeas corpus to get him out of the Lima State Hospital for the criminally insane. The writ had always been used for jails. There was no question that jailers were subject to a writ that a court would look to see if somebody had been properly incarcerated. It had never been applied to an insane asylum. That was always kind of the discretion of a doctor. So right. this was real precedent, and Francis filed it. And then they very 
in a very savvy move, they filed the case in the Court of Appeals, which you could do with a writ, rather than going straight to the Court of Common Pleas. In, in, in Lima, right? Yeah, and in the on the court, one of the three judges on the, the, the panel that they were going to get in Allen County was a guy named Phil Crow, who used to be Francis's father's law partner in Kenton, Ohio. We grandfathers. Way back when. Yeah. So they, one of the reasons I think Francis got hired is that they knew the judge. Uh, one of the three judges, and it was a two to one opinion to let Remus come out. Remus, what 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 Francis did is he went down and got the psychiatrist who had testified for the state of Ohio against Remus in his case, saying he's not insane. You know, he kept saying he had these brainstorms. They put on three psychiatrists back then; they were called alienists, and they put them on. And so my grandfather said, "Well." If you guys say he's sane, I'm going to have you come up here and say the same thing. He used the pros prosecution and, witnesses. And the court said, well, he's sane. He should not be in this insane asylum. And so he was released. Again, there was huge reaction to this. How, My long, mom, how long is he in Lima, do you know? He's there for about six or eight months. Yeah, I think that's right. And my mom, who was a young girl at the time, remembers going to, to school every day with a sheriff because there were threats against my grandfather and threats against her and F. Scott Fitzgerald might have said there's no second acts in American lives but he was wrong when it came to George Remus his friend George Remus really had three acts we talked to our guests Joyce Meyer and Julie Hotchkiss from the Price Hill Historical Society about what was Remus's third act as he lived out his life in the Cincinnati area he tried to be a real estate developer <laughs> he had the property up in Price Hill which through some research that Joyce has done, we've discovered probably was transferred to his third wife, Blanche Watson, before she was his third wife because she loaned them money. She loaned either Remus and Imogene or maybe just Imogene money, and they transferred it after Imogene's death, but it had, the paperwork had been filed before. So that's when Blanche comes into it, and she apparently had dealt with some um, real estate before, and he tried to subdivide and apparently did. There are a lot of houses built in that area now. And he had some other um, real estate. He had offices in downtown Cincinnati. And apparently he went to the races a lot. He had owned racehorses when he was really at the top of his game and still liked to go to the races. And there's stories that he was often seen either in Blanche Watson's company or by himself at various local race courses. So that was mm -hmm. his third act. It was very low key compared to his first two. When he was a, a lawyer in Chicago, he was very flamboyant, mm -hmm. and he got a lot of criminals off. I mean, he was, I, I saw somewhere where he was referred to as the American Rumple. He was the defender of the criminal classes. So, and then his second act was certainly very flamboyant as the bootlegger who figured out how to get through the loopholes in the Volstead Act. And his third act, he was very low-key, and I think he died in 1952, and he just he had an aneurysm and died the next day. And, and stayed in Cincinnati, northern Kentucky area. Interestingly right? enough, northern yeah, Kentucky. he stayed here, uh, lived in Covington, worked in downtown Cincinnati, so probably walked across the bridge to go to work. From Garfield's tomb to the Serpent Mound, from the big cities to the river towns, First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And 
Tip a canoe and tile it too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon So many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Guys, our book recommendation today uh, we've got to send you to Remembering Remus and Price Hill, written by our guests Julie Hotchkiss and Joyce Meyer. You know, 50 pages, some great pictures and, and research they've done for, for that book. Uh, we get it off of Amazon, uh, but a lot of cool other little stories we couldn't get into today about Remus. Uh, they know so much about that Price Hill area. And go, ch- go see them. They're over at uh, the Price Hill Historical Society on Warsaw Avenue. Uh, like we said, just west of downtown. And they're open Tuesdays and Thursdays in the afternoon, or you can call them and set up a tour if you want to learn more about George Remus and Prohibition. Uh, also, check out King of the Bootleggers, really fun book by William Cook. Uh, again, not a, a terribly long read, um, but I really enjoyed, enjoyed that novel by William Cook. And if you want to learn more about Prohibition, there's always the book Last Call by Daniel Okrant. Um, the Rise and Fall of Prohibition, really used as the basis for Ken Burns' documentary, Prohibition, three-part PBS documentary that everybody, I hope, who's listening to this has, has seen. Or just put it on your list. It's on Netflix, um, and it's just awesome. It's so good. So go watch Prohibition. I, I know I've made Miss Ohio be the world watch it before. That'll do it, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, tonight is our launch party. We hope to see you there. Columbus Time Club, 7 p.m., uh, Cash Bar. And again, if you're listening to this after that, don't worry, there'll be a season four launch party, and we'll let you know about it, and you can come to that one. Um, we really appreciate our guests. Again, Mark Plegman, so knowledgeable, um, and Jim Goodman from Municipal Brew Works. So much fun down there. We can't wait to get back to Hamilton. Um, again, go check them out in downtown Hamilton, Municipal Brew Works. Also, our friends Julie Hotchkiss and Joyce Meyer from Price Hill. Uh, awesome times. Thank you so much. And pick up their book on Amazon about Remus. Next week, uh, we will go back to our normal schedule. We're releasing every other Sunday. Uh, so that'll be Sunday, November 4th, when we come out with Ohio vs. Black Power. We'll talk about the 1960s in Cleveland. We'll talk about the Glenville shootout, the election of Carl Stokes, and we'll talk about the Huff Rebellion, uh, the Huff riots in, in East Cleveland. Really cool episode. Uh, I can't wait to talk to with uh, Jim Robinelt, who, who was on this episode as well talking about his grandpa representing Remus and Lima, just a funny connection. If you want to hear us talk more about the, the life of George Remus, the king of the bootleggers, uh, we were just on the Whiskey Business podcast with our friend Dino Tripodis. Uh, Whiskey Business, really cool uh, podcast here. And it's actually our third time on the show, but we talked about uh, George Remus. We drank George Remus's whiskey, um, and, and we had a really good time. So they, they do an episode every single week. And Dino does such a great job, so go check out Whiskey Business when you get a chance. And that episode will drop on Friday, November 2nd. Thanks again to, to all our guests. Rate and review the show. Uh, we're on Twitter. We're not very good at Twitter, but we have a Twitter account. We have some followers. We, we, we tweet, um, and you can reach us there at Ohio V The World. Also, you know, our Instagram, Ohio V The World Podcast, and always on Facebook uh, or our website, OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Uh, so many ways to reach out to us, and so great when our fans do. 
But the best way to do it, again, rate and review the show uh, on iTunes. Give us a five-star, four-star, whatever, and write some comments. It really helps us shoot up the ranks. Uh, we look forward to seeing you guys again. We're starting on Sundays. It'll be November 4th for Ohio versus Black Power. We'll see you later. Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 